Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land, with Dr. Neufeld. We'll be studying the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, with a message entitled, Refusing Compromise. Let's join Dr. Neufeld now. Most of us have heard the words of Psalm 63. In fact, many of us have sung some of its words. Verses 2 and 3 go like this. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Quite the words, wouldn't you say? Your steadfast love is better than life. I mean, what's, what's better than life? Some people can't think of anything better than life. We'll do almost anything to stay alive. We'll make any compromise not to jeopardize the quality of our life. Hang on to life, we say, because life is all we have. I find it interesting that there is a booming cryogenics industry on this continent. There are people who are so afraid of dying that at the point or the moment of death, they want to have their bodies frozen, hoping that at some time in the future, the cure to whatever is killing them today will be found. They can be unfrozen and cured and go on living. I mean, no matter what it costs, they argue, we must go on living. What's better than life? See, isn't it amazing to find a disagreement on that issue? The psalmist says that your love is better than life. Well, we're about to meet three men who actually lived by that maxim. Their testimony speaks to us and challenges us as to what, in fact, is the most important thing for any believer today. Let's begin to read Daniel chapter 3. I'm reading verses 1 to 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, that you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's very difficult to estimate how much time had passed between Daniel 2 and chapter 3. You'll remember that at the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar announced that Daniel's God is the God of gods. That has to mean that even if Nebuchadnezzar still believed in the Babylonian pantheon, along with the occultic system of beliefs, he had already admitted to the superiority of the God of the Hebrews. From that, we might expect that all that was left for him was to become a student of the Hebrew scriptures and to convert fully. Perhaps we might have imagined that he'd become like Ruth, the Moabite woman, who told her mother-in-law, your God shall be my God. But that's not how things always go, and especially not here. And why not? 
Why doesn't Babylon become the second Jerusalem? Well, there are two explanations. I think both are true. The first explanation says that a number of years have passed between chapters 2 and 3. Daniel has become the prime minister of Babylon, and he's been serving the kingdom well. The king has been growing in power as his empire has been growing. The reoccurring dream that so disturbed him years ago was now but a distant memory. Humility has been replaced by egoism as his military might, his wealth, and his vast empire seemed unstoppable. He lost all feelings of vulnerability that so plagued him at first. I mean, that's the first explanation. Time has passed, and he has become a successful man. The second explanation says that the statue was a necessary symbol that was being used to hold his vast empire together. Let me explain. The statue was huge. It was imposing, 90 feet tall, probably taller and more imposing than anyone had seen before. It seems disproportional to us in in that it was only nine feet wide, but its appearance was in keeping with Babylonian art forms. It was also an idol, a representation of a god, and falling down before a 90-foot imposing statue was surely meant to be an act of worship. Many scholars believe that it was a depiction of the Babylonian god Nebu, perhaps the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. Nebuchadnezzar himself had been named after this god, and no doubt he regarded himself as the spokesman for Nebu. In fact, Babylonian theology argued that this is what gave the king of Babylon his authority to rule. The fact that it was made of gold was no doubt meant to depict the glory of the Babylonian kingdom. Furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar no doubt had selective memory. The dream that had troubled him years before was a dream in which the head of gold of a great statue was none other than, well, himself, and a statue of gold seemed to be fitting. So you see, requiring all of his important officials to bow down before the statue of his God was an act of of nationalism. It was the way you showed loyalty to the Babylonian empire and to the king who was the spokesman of the greatest God of Babylon. Failure to bow down meant you were a traitor and that you had to be put to death. So there on the plain of Dura, a furnace had been built to smelt the gold to construct the statue. But they left the furnace there. If you failed to worship, you would yourself go into the very smelting furnace that had made this idol. You know, for our purposes, I've called this image the image of compromise. Nebuchadnezzar called all of his leading officials to bow. They included governors and political leaders and military men and financial advisors and religious leaders. And wherever the band struck up the music, everyone was required to fall on their knees and and every forehead touched the ground. It would have been very much like the kind of pictures that we see from the Islamic world today. Indeed, that form of worship has a very long history. The pressure to conform would have been enormous. Refusal would have meant instant death. The key is that you are free to believe whatever you wanted, only you were not free to refuse to do this external act, which would show your loyalty to the kingdom. Everyone was being pressured to compromise on that one issue. You know, years earlier, when Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that troubled him and Daniel, the, the young Hebrew, was able to explain his dream, Daniel had taken the initiative to have his three friends installed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and now their position of leadership threatened them with an impossible situation. 
Would you compromise to stay in power? Was the loving kindness of God really better than life? You know, up against this pressure to compromise stood the first two of the Ten Commandments. Here they are, recorded from Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, lest you think that Nebuchadnezzar was being too harsh, I think another comment is in order. Nebuchadnezzar never forbade anyone from worshiping whatever god they liked. You could have your own religion in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you can worship the God of Israel. I just want to be sure that you're not traitors and will pay proper homage to the king. See, the only problem with that demand is that it meant that they would have to break the first two of the Ten Commandments. And that was the choice. I can almost imagine a possible reasoning process. Perhaps we'll do this and no one will notice. Perhaps we can do this and explain it away as a civic duty, not an exercise of religious devotion. After all, the first two commands, they might have reasoned, deal with our religion, not the responsibility that we have to a foreign state. Now, from that imagined internal dialogue and the internal pressure that they would have felt, I believe that we can take a number of very real lessons for our own lives today. Let's begin by noticing that we have called our series in Daniel, Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. And as we come to chapter 3, we notice the high cost of singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. And with this, let's reflect on this one fact. There is an ongoing pressure for God's people to accept the doctrine of syncretism. Ultimately, syncretism becomes the predominant ideal in all cultures that seek to dominate others. Syncretism is a demand that attempts to violate the belief structure of others, demanding they adhere to some value greater than their own faith. And no follower of Christ will agree to that. Thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to more from Dr. Neufeld in just a moment. Numbers are rising as we work toward our goal of 80 guests joining Dr. Neufeld, Phil Calloway, and the Weebs for our very first New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea Tour. 12 days from April 24th to May 5th, 2017. Eight days by land and four days cruising the Greek islands all the while visiting locations so critical to the growth of the New Testament church. Incredible sites like Ephesus, Corinth, Patmos, and the incredible island of Santorini. Join us and be engaged and refreshed in the study of God's Word, as well as fellowship and worship with God's people, including special events hosted by Phil Calloway of Laugh Again and Shane and Angela Weeb. Make sure not to be disappointed. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca for all the information you'll need. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Let me explain the word syncretism. It comes from a root word which means to be in sync. 
Syncretism is an attempt to get a variety of cultural values, philosophical ideals, and religious beliefs to be in sync or to appear to say the same thing. Syncretism is a system that teaches that we can melt all religious ideas together so that any difference in religion is only in external appearances. That's what's happening in our culture today. There's an attempt to say that all religions teach the golden rule or all religions teach a respect for life, including nature. It's just that we have different traditions or a a different storyline of getting there. If any religion says that its God is the only God, well, that's intolerant. We are today facing enormous pressure to compromise. Some time ago, I read an article in the Vancouver Sun on this very issue. You know, in that article, a pastor of a certain denomination was condemning Missions Fest, which is held in Vancouver every year. Here's what he said. Are the organizers of Missions Fest saying they believe that non-Christians who live exemplary lives are condemned? And then he went on to say the following. It's so offensive. In many ways, it's spiritually arrogant. Many of us know how well this language plays in the secular press. And rather than being honest about what Christianity actually teaches about universal sin and the the need for a Savior, most simply can't get beyond the exclusive truth claims that are found in the Bible. They're offensive. Well, claims like, for instance, the ones that Jesus makes in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or the foundational teaching of the apostles found in Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Christians might point out that no religion on earth actually talks about how forgiveness is to be found. It's not like one religion offers one path to forgiveness and the next another. That's not what you find in the real world. Most world religions don't see sin, and the response of an angry, righteous God is a problem. And and for that reason, Jesus is the only Savior, only makes sense once we grasp both the righteousness of God and the horror of sin. Only Christianity offers salvation. But to many, the only thing that they hear is that this is not inclusive, which means you're unwilling to be syncretistic like the rest of us should be. And the culture demands that unless we're syncretistic, we should be shouted down. Now, sometimes nations demand syncretism as a matter of law. This was the struggle that the early Christians faced. Most of us know that Christians were persecuted in the days of the Roman Empire, but many of us don't know why. See, it was never illegal to be a Christian. Christians were allowed to believe anything they wanted in the ancient Roman world. They could worship Christ as God. No one stopped that. But citizens of Rome were also required on occasion to say by an oath that Caesar was Lord. And Christians responded, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. They announced that all the gods of Rome were no gods at all, and that there was but one God who had revealed himself in his son. This son had died in agonizing manner for the sins of the whole world because he is the only hope for the human race. The human race is on a collision course with an angry, incensed God who will punish each one for his or her sins. But through Jesus alone was an avenue of mercy opened up. Now, for saying this, they were condemned as atheists because Christians denied the Roman gods and refused to tolerate other religious systems, and for that they were persecuted. 
See, I'm afraid that some Christians in our culture are ashamed of the gospel. There are some that are afraid to agree with the first two commandments or are ashamed to say that Jesus alone is Lord. See, we are pressured to bow before the statues of others because we're afraid that we're going to look like we're intolerant. See, but if it's possible to have sins forgiven outside of Christ's cross, let me say then that Christ died for nothing. You remember what he prayed in the garden? I'm reading Matthew 26, verse 42, which says, He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. See, I'm afraid that some of us think that Jesus and his Father got it wrong. We think it was possible to achieve salvation in another way. We think he could have passed up the cup. After all, can't people be saved in some other attempt to get in touch with their spirituality? What about people who have good morals and and live exemplary lives? See, I want you to understand that Christians are not called to be intolerant of other religious views. We should respect people of other religious systems. We should read and try to understand what it is that they teach and why they teach it. I mean, above all, we should not feel superior to anyone, for we most certainly are not. Some things that are taught in other religious systems are true and have the effect of bringing wisdom into people's lives, and we do and need to applaud that. But respectfully, that's not the point. If it is true that all are sinners and under the judgment of God, then everyone has a problem on the day of judgment. What we are saying is that God sent his Son as the only hope for humanity. The only hope for salvation is in Christ. And for that reason, we cannot be syncretistic. In that sense, the gospel of Jesus is always out of sync. So let's get back to the plain of Dura and the demand to bow before the statue and and so prove loyalty to Babylon. The lesson of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that these three young men were looking for a way to bless the nation in which they lived. They weren't enemies of the state. Indeed, the state was benefited by the commitment of these men. But there are some things, no matter how misunderstood they would be, there were some things they simply could not and would not do. Now, according to Scripture, the spirit of Babylon figures into a syncretistic religious system that will eventually climax in the kingdom of the Antichrist. Because Daniel is a book that anticipates the end times, we need to see that these events on the plain of Dura are like the events of the final coming of Antichrist. Revelation 13, 11-12 says the following, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It would seem like the last human empire will demand what Babylon and Rome demanded, emperor worship. Believe what you like, but when the band plays, fall down and worship the image. It's your patriotic requirement. But let's get back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura. I'm reading verses 8 to 12. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
There are certain Jews who, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, there comes a time when it's no longer possible to hide. I don't think that any of us should seek martyrdom, but there is a time when martyrdom seeks us. And in the case of these three men, it soon became clear that they had long-standing enemies. The Chaldeans mentioned here were the spokesmen for the wise men of Babylon, the, the leaders of this occultic group. And they had remembered that when the king had a dream, that this group of young Jewish men had humiliated them, and they remembered how quickly they were promoted, and they never forgot, and they knew it was payback time now. Have you noticed that persecution is never straightforward? It always seeks alternative reasons to condemn, but condemn it does. But in the end, it isolates those who will not bow down to the king's statue and publicly identifies them. And at some point in time, every believer today who names the name of Christ is going to have to say, your loving kindness, O Lord, is better than life. Heavenly Father, I pray for God's people. May we not love the things of this world more than you. May we not even cling to our own lives. May we find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. Your loving kindness is better than life. John, I think we've all marveled as we've read the Bible and this, this story in Daniel about his three friends but what does this look like for us today? We're not going to be put into a fiery furnace yet anyway. Well, I know that for uh, many um, university students, Christian kids go off to university, it can feel very much like they're being put into a fiery furnace. So, you know, I mean, they, they might be called upon to, to defend their faith or, you know, they might actually hang their heads and, and, and hope they can get away with not showing themselves to be a Christian. But, I mean, my experience in a secular university tells me that, that you can actually, you know, get through it and not be ashamed of your faith and testify why it is that you believe that Christ alone is Lord and, and to make that case as best that you can. And you can survive that experience. So, I mean, that would be one example where this idea of uh, compromise is always before us. And, and uh, you know, universities of today demand syncretism. So somehow I think we need to train our young people to do that. But I think that's found in a number of other areas, too, where, where Christians encounter either the media or they may encounter a job situation or something of that nature in which they're called upon to basically say that they accept some kind of a syncretistic religion. We will not. Thanks, John, and thanks for listening to Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This month, we introduced a new edition of our Highlight Reel series entitled Being the People of God. This series took five of Dr. Neufeld's most important messages on living a life as a follower of Jesus. Some of the messages included the purpose of the Christian life, the ever-present spirit, and wise words to gullible people. So if you feel this would be a series that would encourage you, a friend, or even to place in your church library, we'd like to offer you this series on CD free till the end of this month as our gift. 
And all you need to do is call us directly at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or request the Highlight Reel series, Being the People of God, by emailing info at backtothebible.ca.